History Hour, we discuss various topics dealing with history, American history, African history, all history, because all history is black. It all started with us. We wouldn't have history if it wasn't for our presence here on Earth. Today, we have two mighty, mighty special guests. We're going to discuss some special events that's going on here in the city of Houston, state of Texas. I have a person that I would consider uh, a mentor to me. Um, He's the national chair of the National Black United Front. Um, He's a grassroots organizer. Um, He's from Southeast D.C., a fan of Go-Go. We don't have any (laughs) Go-Go music to give him his intro. But um, ladies and gentlemen, I, I just want to um, get this man his, his flowers, man. He's, he, he's one of those brothers that we call grassroots um, organizers, and we're not going to get into that today. But um, on another episode, we really want to get into talking about what grassroots organizing means. I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's taking on a, diff- a different definition for the new generation. But without further ado, Brother Kofi representing the National Black United Front. How you doing, Brother Kofi? I'm standing tall. Black power to you and all of the sisters and brothers that are in your listening audience. We thank you for the honor and privilege of being a guest on your show. All right. Before I introduce the esteemed guest, the other guest that we have on the show, Brother Kofi, I just want you to um, prepare the people for what's been going on in Houston around the month of October for the last 25 years. Um of course, this is for people in Houston, but also we have people that, that watch and that listen to this show outside of, of just Houston. So we use the word caravan to the ancestors. It's an annual event that takes place on the shores of Galveston, Texas, which has its own deep cultural history within itself. Um, for anyone that, that follows Juneteenth and the history of Juneteenth. But Brother Kofi, can you just explain to the people the history of the caravan? to the ancestors. In 1998, the National Black United Front was organizing its 19th annual convention. We have conventions and they are in different cities across the country. And as a part of our convention, which is a part of the tradition, we want to deal with spirituality. And Sister Akua Ho from Amandala Productions, Brother President Jelani Williams from the Tasseti African Historical Society, Brother Omawali, who was the secretary of MBUF at the time, and the members of the Houston chapter were planning this. And we said, what are we going to do uh, on that, uh, doing this convention? Are we going to go to church collectively? Are we going to have, what are we going to do? And ideas came about, and we said we wanted to have a collective spiritual experience. Sister Kua is from Galveston. Uh, Brother Omawali did some extensive research on the history of African people in Galveston, that being a port of entry, but also just general history. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of history there in Galveston, Texas, because Galveston was there before Houston. There was a seat in Texas or in this region before Houston even came about. So we decided after a lot of creative interaction with each other and collaboration that we would have this public ceremony acknowledging, uplifting, venerating our ancestors. And 
we must say that Dr. Holly Garima's movie had come out in 1993, the movie Sankofa. And what his movie did is put on the big screen much of what our scholars, historians, activists have been doing for many decades and centuries, it put it on the big screen, helping us understand some of our African history, uh, culture, African and American history, culture, spirituality. So it popularized the term even more so of Sankofa. And we named it Sankofa, the caravan to the ancestors. It was one out of, I think, a four day convention, but it was that Saturday. And we went to the beach there in Galveston. This particular part of the beach that we go to was the segregated part of the beach where black people, only black people could go for a long period of time with the support of our sister Sue Johnson from Nia Cultural Center and her husband who was an ancestor brother Banjoko who were on the ground giving us the logistics. And we had a tremendous uh, day. There was a ceremony. We're gonna hear from uh, Baba Small uh, Chief Priest Baba Ogunde was there, Sister uh, Professor Fabia Kujichakalia from Oakland, who was a priestess as well, Sister Yemenya. And amongst those four, they were kind of charged with helping us through uh, this ceremony. So it was like prayer, drums, song, speech. You know, we were communing there. And it was very, very powerful. Uh, which took place. And it was uh, Brother brother Professor Small who said, who decreed, y'all, this should be a holy day. Y'all need to do this every year. I myself personally wasn't thinking about it, but we took that charge and uh, we moved it because it was so hot in July. We moved it to October and some people had said that October was my alpha month. And come hell or high water, brother, mm -hmm with, uh, you know, whether it's 10 or 10,000 of us coming up this year will be 25 years. Every year, that third Saturday in October, we have held some form or fashion of the National Black United Front Sankofa Caravan to the answer. I want to say congratulations on that. 25 years of doing an event. And also, Brother Kofi, just to clarify for people that's watching this, this is an all faiths event. Right. We welcome all faiths. That's in line with the National Black United Front. And it is a physical caravan from Houston to Galveston of cars, buses. We have motorcycles and what have you that take that trip to the shores of Galveston on 29th Street and Seawall Boulevard. It is all faiths, but the root of it, one of our goals is to expose people to some of our traditions that we may have we may have either lost or not been as connected to. So there's some African spiritual traditions, some Ifa traditions that Baba Small can get into that, that have played a big part, but it is open to all faiths. And I think when people go out there, they will understand and recognize <clears throat> that we've always had those traditions, even some similarities in the Christian church for people that, that go to church or, or people that practice Islam. A lot of what we practice came from the African spiritual system. We, we just may not understand it or know it, but when you go out there and you see it, then you'll recognize something. Even the, the libation is a ritual that we practice 
Now we just don't know it. Brothers say, I'm, I'm going to pour some of mine for the dead homie. They don't really understand that they're practicing a, a libation. But also, Brother Kofi, um, one thing that's special about this year is the events leading up to the actual caravan. The actual caravan is, is that Saturday. But right. can you let the people know the events that are leading up to the Saturday? Absolutely. Uh, you want to go to 2022 Sankofa. That's S-A-N-K-O-F-A. S-A-N-K-O-F-A. Caravan.eventbrite.com. That's 2022 Sankofa Caravan.eventbrite.com. That gives you the full schedule. Quickly, we're kicking it off on the 1st, October the 1st. We're doing something special. We're having a, a all all white and silver party. It's a boat cruise that'll be leaving from League City on that Saturday. The next Saturday on the 8th, we're focusing on the youth with uh, family tree tracing, a dinkra symbol, stamping, face painting. It's a fun day, but we want to help to educate our youth. They love going to the caravan, but understand some of the meanings of it. That'll be on the 8th. And then on the 14th, we're going to be pleased to have at the historic deluxe theater in Fifth Ward on no, the sir. north side of town. On the north side of town, uh, Baba Small and Mama C. And they're going to be in a dialogue. And the question on the table that we've asked them to deal with and you and Alicia to deal with is how do we make spirituality and black liberation a life commitment? Not a hashtag, not a trend, not something that's in today and out tomorrow. And we know that these two are eminently qualified to deal with that question because both of them have been in our movement since their teenage years or perhaps even before that. So those are the pre-caravan events. And then on October the 15th, that is the Sankofa Caravan itself, where we leave from the Black House here at the National Black United Front Headquarters, caravan to 29th Street uh, and Seawall Boulevard. And we have a prayer, drumming, ritual, congregation with each other. Everybody wears white. We're asking people to wear white and silver, if possible, this year. And that is, um, you know, that's the that's that's going to be the experience. And we out there on the beach. What time again, Brother Kofi, for people to meet up for the your actual caravan? 6 a.m. at the Black House at 2428 Southmore. The caravan pulls out at 7 a.m. Beach ceremony starts at 9 a.m. 29th Street in Seawall Boulevard in Galveston. Texas and it generally will go from nine to noon, nine to one, just depending. There are a lot of variables with traffic and everything, but that's how that's generally the uh, time for the ceremony on the beach. And as you said, it's welcome to all faiths. I don't want anyone to say that they didn't know. So spread the word. If you're in Houston, spread the word because I, I don't like when people come. And, it, and they, they see you on Sunday and say, man, I wish I would have known about it. Why you didn't tell me? Now, with the power of technology, if you're on social media, we see everything else. If you see it, don't make an excuse to say you didn't see it. You know, October 1st is the boat ride. October 14th will be the lecture. October 15th will be the actual caravan. Now, don't forget the Youth Day on the 8th. Youth Day, that's right. The, the Youth, youth Day on day the 8th. On the 8th. And E, people mm -hmm. come from everywhere. I know this podcast goes up. 
people come from all over the United States and all over the world. Specifically, we've had the great privilege to have visitors from everywhere to come to the Caravan to the Ancestors, the Sankofa Caravan to the Ancestors. Yeah, people in Dallas, people in Austin, people in San Antonio, um, people Oklahoma. in Atlanta, Oklahoma, California. Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Yeah. New York. Yeah. DC gonna be down here this year. <laughs> yeah. DC. Yeah. yeah. Atlanta. Yeah. Africa. A number of people from different uh, countries in Africa have been, been there, you know. Jamaica. Brazil. Global. Yeah. yeah. With, with that being said, I want to also introduce an esteemed elder that's been in the movement since a teenager. Um, I'm honored to say that we stand on his shoulders. Um, Professor Small, man, you have an extensive resume, so I'm going to try to get through it as, as fast as I can. And if I leave anything out that you want me that, that I didn't say, I want you to um, let the people know. I'm going to start off by saying a scholar, an activist, a um, speaker, an organizational consultant, um, the CEO of Sanai Lodge Enterprise, uh, Ghana Limited, um, CEO and president of the African-American Management Company. Like I said, he's been in the movement since a teenager. He became a bodyguard for Malcolm X's sister, um, sister Ella Collins, from what about 18 to 20 years. He was her personal bodyguard. Um, he was part of the Organization of African American Unity, the OAAU, which was founded by Malcolm X. He also became an imam of the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which was also founded by Malcolm X. He was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is uh, SNCC. So he's been around Kwame Touré. He's been around the Panthers. He's been around Eldridge Cleaver. Um, he studied with John Henry Clark, Asa Hilliard, Dr. Ben Yakanon, Dr. Amos Wilson, um, Dr. Wade Nobles, Crans Dr. Francis um, Westling. I mean, the, the, the names can go on and on and on. He taught for 15 years at City University of New York, uh, 13 years at City College of New York in the Black Studies Department, where he taught courses, courses on Pan-Africanism, um, African religions, and African spiritual systems. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce everyone out here to Professor Small. Professor Small, how you doing, brother? I'm good, sir, and thank you, brother, again to you and your comrades and your show and inbox to have me on for what discussions we will have. Yeah, and you were at the first it's always an honor. at the first caravan in 1998. Yes, sir. And we yes. can say that, that you put the energy out there as Brother Kofi stated that this should be an ongoing event. Did you think it would keep going for 25 years? Well, I was also a member of Inbox. Mm -hmm. And Inbuck had been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Some of the, the strongest collections of revolutionary nationally. Mm. A lot of people don't know the history of Inbuck as a national phenomenon mm -hmm. that was moving educational systems in Brooklyn and Chicago and Detroit um, that pioneered the, the concept of a board for the education 
of people of African ancestry. That came right up out of Enba and trying to get curriculas into the school system in Detroit, in Chicago, um, in developing African-centered school like Uhuru Sasa in mm. the East, with Jetuuzi and the others in New York City. NBOP have been a fierce revolutionary force in the black community. So when we were making the move to reburying the ancestors, I had no doubt that NBOP would, would take it to the next level, and they did. And that's why we're here 25 years later. Professor Small, I want to, I really want to get your journey. So when people come out on October 14th, mm -hmm. they will understand how you got to this point in your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah a, a lot of people in the movement are like, like me, we, we lived in the shadows. We were in the movement. Um, I was doing sit-ins and stuff when I was 14 years old down in Georgetown, South Carolina. Yeah, let's start with that. So can 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 the South lay claim to you? Can can we say you oh, yeah. are a native well, of, of the South? I'm a Gullah tribal right. man from the coastal South Carolina. Um, and our heritage is, is deep into the heritage of the pre-enslaved African population that was here. Like we were everywhere else in the world um, before that point. And the enslaved population, the prisoners of war that was brought over here. And those two groups amalgamated. And I come from that group of people, um, group of Africans, like most of us do. But we just don't know our history. You know, I most wanna... people who call themselves African-Americans mm. is an amalgamation of the indigenous black population pre-Asiatic. And the African population that came over after 1492. Mm. And those populations amalgamated into one population. We have never been separate populations in the way some of our brothers and sisters who don't know history trying to say there's this little separate group of tribes somewhere called whatever, whatever. That's not reality. Um, and, and many of the indigenous, and I want to get this in so people can understand foundation. Go ahead. Many of the indigenous people, because I can take you, see, I don't play the game of, I'm something I'm not. I can take you to South Carolina. I can take you into Oak Hill Forest. I can take you to the gravesite of my African people who buried in the Western style with the tombstones. And I can take you to gravesites of my indigenous African people who buried in mounds. Okay? Because that's the life I came out of. We weren't straight-haired Asiatics though we called ourselves Indians as children, partly. But we didn't mean the white man version of the white skin Asiatic with the long hair, the Cochise thing, right? The African population who was here first encountered the Asiatic 10,000 years before we encountered Christopher Columbus. Mm. And we were at war with them, okay? So by the time the slave ships got here, we were glad to see some other black folks hmm. <laughs> and allow for us to come together. Leron Bennett, in his early book, Shaping of Black America from the 1970s, began to deal with this topic in a chapter called The Red and the Black. He wrote Before the Mayflower as well, right? Was that, uh -huh. Did he write Before the Mayflower as well? Yes, he did, which uh -huh. is a classic work. Mm -hmm. And everybody should get a copy of both of those books. But in that book, 
Laron Chronicle, how the white folks says, listen, the ones living in the village along coastal, the coastal Atlantic, they look like the ones we just brought here. So let's raid their village and enslave all of them. Mm. And that's what they did. And we amalgamated into one people. Every shade of brown. Professor Small. All light brown skin don't come just from the little encounter with some white folks. Mm. Because many of the indigenous Africans had married into the Asiatics who we call Indians before we even got here on the second coming. So those kinds of things, when you know that as your foundation, helps you become who you become, all of us. And as we examine, I tell people, examine your family tree. And I bet you're going to find an African revolutionary in there. It might be the 1800s, 1700s, early 1900s, the 1800s. But you're going to find them because our people always fought. That's what I wanted to ask you. Where did your, where exactly can you remember when your journey started? Um, with when you being born, politicized at such a young age? I was born into a family that was in the movement. My grandfather was uh, grandmaster of the Prince Hall Temple. He was also a member of the Morris Science Temple. One of my family member, a small, is one of the founders of the Morris Science Temple. I rarely put that out there because I don't want to be fighting with people about stuff. Right? But Morris Science was not what people are making it today. We understood we were talking about black people fighting for their freedom. Was this Noble Drew Ali, Tom? Yes. Okay. Yes. I had a family member who was a partner with Noble Drew Ali. That's another time, another story. Mm-hmm. But that didn't make Papa. Papa was just a black man, like all the black men I grew up with who fought for black people. And they used the black church to do it because that was the best tool they had at the time. And they used the Masonic Lodge to do it because that was the best tool they had at the time. They used Morris Science to do it later on. My grandmother, his wife, was a root lady, a traditional African priestess. Her mother, who came from Sierra Leone, was a traditional root lady, African priestess. Her father, who came from Uganda. So I grew up knowing these people. That's, that's who I am. It was my grandmother that I had first used the word Africa to tell us where we were from. They call her Miss Pigeon. She was the root woman for Georgetown County. Everybody went to her. And root woman simply means a healer, a herbalist. Uh, 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 um, uh, one who delivers babies and so forth and who carries on the African tradition. And these people hid Africa in the church. So when you went to the church and you saw them shouting, we call it shouting in the Western way, but those were the indigenous African dances that their ancestors brought with them to America. We saw them get possessed. We call it the Holy Ghost. But in the Europa temple, it's a possession by the Orishas or the gods. And so they weren't stupid. They knew who they were. But we couldn't call what we were doing certain things because that could cost you your life and your livelihood. So we hid our Africanness in the institutions that was available for our use. And that's the Masonic Temple, the Odd Fellas, the Knights of Pythias, the daughters of Ruth, the daughters of Isis, the daughters of Tent. These were 
the places where our revolutionary movement came out of. And all of them hid themselves in the church because that was a sanctuary white folks didn't look for Africa in. They thought they had us. It wasn't just me, but most blacks, if they look back hard enough, will have see that, wow, I came out of an experience I didn't even realize I came out. I was fortunate because of the interrelationship and my mother being only the second generation born in America and me being the third. So we were close to Africa in that way. Um, and being in South Carolina, coastal South Carolina, Gullah Geechee culture, where we had a lot of what the Indies call maroon communities, we call the Freewood niggas. Mm. Okay, that's what we were called, the Freewood niggas, because we lived in the swamps. And many of us didn't come out of the swamps until the 1970s, okay? And most of my family come out of the Freewood. And we still talk about it. That's part of the family conversation today. Those were the runaways. So on, on this, this journey that you discovered through your family and just having that, that energy and that spirit of the movement, it was already innate in you when you came out of the womb, it seems. At what like, point? Like with, and, and I don't want to make it peculiar to me, mm -hmm. because if others examine their history like I, I was able to live mine overtly, but I know that if you examine your history, you will find some of the same things. Kofi will find some of the same things, the same people that I grew up with. I was lucky to be in coastal South Carolina in the Gullah Geechee community, where there's whole towns then and now that's Black like Marysville, which is between, in Georgetown County, between Charleston and Myrtle Beach on the Atlantic, that's a black town where we've been since the Civil War ended. Down the road is Fraziersville. Up the road from it is Parkersville. These are black settlements that's been intact since the 1860s. Marysville, and down the road from Marysville, about three miles is Simmonsville, they're all my family. The whole town is mm. small. Smalls and greens. Mm. And so I grew up in that thing. I didn't know what it was other than family. I would only learn later it was Africa. Mm. That we were in African villages. So, that we were in African households. Where you can sleep in anybody's house if you got caught out late. You can eat at anybody's house if you happen to be there when it was eating time. If you did anything, anybody in that community would whip you behind and send you home for the second whipping. It was a village. And everybody understood it. It was the concept of the village. It was the village. Mm -hmm. We didn't leave the village behind. We brought it in our mind. Now, this is maybe a, a, a two-part question. One is, um, and, and, and maybe it may go together. Mm -hmm. The influence of Malcolm X on your personal and spiritual journey as well as Islam the effect of Islam on your personal and spiritual journey how did well, you get there I saw Malcolm X in 1960 either the winter of 63 or the winter of 62 and I was like blown away on TV in one of these news things and so I told my mother and father, who had moved to New York a few years earlier, looking for better work, could they bring me to meet him? 
that my mother brought me in the summer. I remember me and Brother Dwight Green, we went to the mosque, the temple. We lived on 115th Street. The temple was around the corner on 116th and Lenox. And we couldn't, every time we got there, he wasn't there. So one day we went, and people said, oh, he's down at the Food Family Supermarket on 141st and 8th Avenue, giving out flyers against the march on Washington. This was summer of 63. So we jumped on the bus and we went down there. And I got to meet him. I'm 16 years old. There's this tall, light-skinned guy. I didn't realize he was so light, you know, because you got certain concepts in your brain. He was the nicest, coolest, softest, gentlest brother you want to talk to. I was scared to death. I must have trembled through the whole 10 or 15 minutes he talked to right in me. And I told him I was going to leave school. I'm going to come and join him. And he checked me. And he gave me a little brief thing on education. And he says, education is one of the ways we're going to be able to free our people. And you need to go back and finish high school down in South Carolina and go on to college. That was my motive force for going to college. Um, Malcolm X. Because I had never seen a man as fierce in just those few minutes and the few words I heard him say on television towards the white population in America, except for my grandfather, ever. I thought he was a god, and I barely knew his name then. I know he's a god now. Um, and so that was the initial influence. I went back home to South Carolina, I finished high school, but when I went back home, I wanted to be Malcolm X. I thought I was Malcolm X. I knew nothing about him except my fantasy of who he was, right? I remember debating one of my classmates, Sister Shirley, who was, took Dr. King's position and I took Malcolm X's position. And that was in the spring of 64. And we got involved more heavily in the movement of 64 and uh, where this white guy at a store called Flagless Supermarket and the black community pull a gun on a brother for stealing a loaf of bread. We were, I was on the football team and we were about two blocks away and we heard about it. And if you can imagine 44 young black men in football cliques running on asphalt, hmm. full speed, it sounded like a herd of horses and we wrecked the supermarket, wrecked it. He tried to open again, but our mothers and our families came and we put up a picket line for the next three or four months and he closed it never to open it again in the black community. And so during the same time, I joined the Naval Reserves. But I'm talking this black Malcolm X thing. So the white folks railroaded me into the military. The day I graduated, I had to get on a bus and go to Pensacola, Florida. I couldn't even attend my graduating party. But family came from all around because they had me out of town, you know? I didn't understand fully the impact of racism and how it worked then, but I realized at that moment, they got powers that can manipulate me. And, but I had friends and a friend who was a white friend was my commanding officer, Ray Roberts, who I always love, he's an ancestor now. Ray went to bat and got me out of the military because I had seven football scholarships. I couldn't take because they threw me in the military. Was it a I, draft? Was it? No, I was already in the reserves. I joined the reserves in 63. 
to make extra money to help out around the house. I didn't know you had to go in the military. It was a dumb country. Hey, I thought at the end of school, I could walk away from that, right? But you live in there. And so Ray got me out, and I took a scholarship at Savannah State in Georgia. And in August of that year, I went to Savannah State and reported uh, for, for duty. I made the, the team. Um, I made third team, which meant I made the team. That meant I could play and I had a chance to work up the first team. I was a halfback but I had to go and report to my reserve duty. So when I went to the reserve center then that, I'm dressed clean. The, the reserves, Naval Reserve in Georgetown, South Carolina had been integrated back in 1942 and they never segregated it again. So I thought that was true all over the world. So when I get to Savannah, I go dressed up in my Navy uniform. I got my orders from the president of the United States telling me where to report for duty. And I said, Seaman, I knocked on the door and a man opened the door. So I said, Seaman, apprentice, small reporting for duty, sir. He said, nigga, what you doing here? And slammed the door in my face. Wow. I'm going like, oh, shit. Dang. I'm down in Georgia by myself and I'm getting this kind of treatment. So I don't know what to do. So I knocked on the door again. And the guy opened the door after a few minutes, but now a couple of officers are with them. I reported, handed them my orders. They asked me, how did I get orders for there? I said, they came from Washington. This is my closest station. I'm a student at Savannah State directly down the road from you. They brought me inside and left me in a foyer for about an hour by myself. Nobody talking to me, nobody saying nothing, just peeking through doors. I found out that that center had never been integrated. So they thought I was a part of the civil rights movement. Right? I wasn't even thinking nothing like that. I just decided not to get court-martialed who had come to integrate their reserve center. So that night when I left, I got beaten up a little bit, not really badly, because some of them did come out and help me because I was wearing uniform um, by some civilians, uh, whites. And so when I came the next month, they were they gave me security to walk me back to the bus stop to go back to the campus but the civilians tried to attack us again and somebody drove by in a car and fired five shots no one got hurt seriously but i had to leave savannah the next day so when you left savannah i was i was angry i was bitter I was the first one from my family to ever go to college, and somebody just took that away from me. But I was also afraid that they would come for me because I'm in the South, and in those day and time. So I volunteered to go overseas, to go full-time in the Navy, go overseas to get out of the country, to get to safety. So within a month, I'm in Rota, Spain, aboard the USS Manly, you know, a destroyer leader. And I spent two years in the Navy, organizing politically. I had 11 what you would call court martials. I won them all except one. Um, I left the military. Well, I met, I would meet Malcolm again in the military, right? Not in person. He'll get assassinated while I'm in France. My brother told me that he's going to be in France and we went to Paris, me and some of the guys. He never shows up, but we don't know why. So we go back to Cannes and Nice and do what young people 18 years old do. We party, have a good time. Two weeks later out at sea, we get um, mail call 
And in my mail is a big packet from my brother. And when I open the packet, it's the clippings of the assassination of Malcolm X and the assassination of John Kennedy. And I was shocked. So I made a big, huge album. And I would show it to all of the guys and tell them who Malcolm X was. And the CID, which is the Central Intelligence Division of the Navy, seized my album from my locker, but denied that they had done it, but others had seen them. And that's when I began to realize there was something else going on politically and I didn't understand it. Even though we were organized in the Navy and in the Army, we had a group we call ourselves the Split Brotherhood. That was the Black folk. We wore a natural hairdo, which we got fined $50 every month for wearing, for not cutting. But that was our way of protesting. Many of us refused to fight in Vietnam. I was one who refused to fight in Vietnam when my orders came to go to Vietnam. My ship did go to Vietnam without me. I did get a captain's mask for some statements I made, but I, and I didn't win that. But because the Admiral was a kind of a friend, I had some light duty to pay. But the very gun mount that I loaded on, I loaded on a three-inch anti-aircraft gun, and it was right in behind a five-inch 54 heavy gun. That blew up and killed most of my friends two months after I left the ship. So I was, that really let me know there's a God we don't understand. Another group of the brothers, the comrades, who were part of the split brotherhood, and many of them joined UDT, uh, Underwater Demolition, which became Navy SEAL. I wanted to join it, but I, I couldn't swim good enough. So, you know, they junked me. But they went over, and these are brothers who were like, I was close to like I'm with Kofi, right? And you hit the beach first, the Red Squad, and there was a truck waiting for them to jump in. But once they jump in and turn the ignition, all of my friends was gone in one super, one moment. Mm. So that embittered me even more. So when I came out of the military, I owed the Americans four more years. I refused to give. I was court-martialed, arrested in New York City. I was with Kwame Toure picketing the draft office on 125th Street. And I was court-martialed in New York City. Is this around the time when you joined SNCC? Yes. And I don't know whether I won or lost the court-martial. But three years later, they sent me an honorable discharge. <laughs> the whole damn court, and they told me I could go. I went to court. Let me say, I know people think I'm crazy. Then they thought I was like really crazy. You know, I showed up to my court martial. I didn't have on a Navy uniform like I was told to. I showed up with a black beret, buttons all around, black leather jacket, bandella bullet across my chest, and a 25 beret on my hip. Black and jungle boots and fatigue pants. And they go like, you can't go in there like that. I said, well, I'm going in there like that. So they wouldn't let me in the courtroom. They gave me a chair outside the courtroom and they assigned this uh, young uh, Chinese lieutenant as my lawyer. And we spent the whole day back and forth until about three in the afternoon. And they told me I could go, they'd be in touch. I didn't hear from the US government for three years when I got an honorable discharge in the mail. I guess they said, we don't want to mess with this crazy because we don't want the race thing to blow up in our face in the military. And so that's just a small piece. Now, at this time, I'm already in OAU. I'm becoming the, the imam. I was elected the imam over the Muslim mosque, Inc. 
with multiple other imams, more senior than me, were interviewed, I was 21 years old. And so I became the imam of a Malcolm's Muslim mosque. Can we go back just for a second? At what point did you did you discover Islam before you even became Never discovered Islam. Um, okay. I, I didn't want to be the imam. When they, I wanted to be an OAU. I was the one that asked for the mosque to be reopened because I thought the other brothers need a spiritual foundation. I didn't think I needed one, right? So when they had the meetings, it was brothers from Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and here, and Ella and others. Um, the man who buried Malcolm Hisham, Jabber, shared it. And they picked me, and I never put my name in the hat. So when Hisham came downstairs in the center, in the mosque, to say that I'd been elected, I refused. Because I didn't want to be a Muslim. I didn't want to be a I don't have a damn thing to do with religion by that time. My grandfather was a preacher. I had been in the church since I was 12 years old. Did they not know that you you were not practicing Islam when they elected you? Or? Yeah. I mean, but I was a soldier in OAAU. Okay. And I called to have the mosque reopened. Right? And I learned Islam. Hisham trained us because I was was one of the leaders. I was recruiting brothers who came back from Nam, brothers I could trust. Brothers who were soldiers, brothers who could handle weaponry. Mm-hmm. Everybody I recruited had that background. That was my background. And so I would learn later, they manipulated the election because Ella wanted me. Mm. I was her bodyguard. She felt she could control me. So she wanted me. And so the others voted to favor her. And they turned down some very seasoned and strong um Imams, one of whom tried to assassinate me later because of that. Mm. You know, but I won't. I'll leave that alone. Mm-hmm. That's another part of history. Someday, maybe I'll write a book. Um, but I never really. I studied Islam because anything I do, I've got to learn it well. I studied the Quran. I studied the language. I spoke the language. I knew the religion. I could teach the religion. But you'd rarely see me. No one knew I was the imam. If you came to the mosque, I had about 11 junior imams who was in training. That's who you would see teaching. I would be the guy that would bring you your tea, bring you your coffee. The ladies would come. I'd be the guy that gave them a cloth to go with the sisters to wrap themselves in a long dress. And I'd be the security guy on the door. But I was the imam. Just for for context, Professor Small, can you explain what the imam is for people that may not know? Right. The imam is the spiritual leader not so much the spiritual leader, that has become the myth. And that's the problem I had with them then and now. The imam is the individual who leads the Muslim congregation into prayer. He's not a clergy. He's not a priest, but they've turned him into a clergy and a priest. That's not what the book says. That's not what the teaching says. An imam simply is the one who is most learned through practice and knowledge of Islam in any given community. That qualifies that person to stand at the head of the congregation to make prayer. But there is no priesthood in Islam, but they've created one. There is no clergy in Islam, but they've created one. There is no holy day in Islam. This thing of Friday being 
the Sabbath. Bullshit. That's not true. Okay. So I had all of these conflicts then. So I was the rebel. But I went further during the whole period. I'm running the mosque for nearly 18 years. Well, I stopped running it after 11 years. I oversaw it for the other few years until I totally stepped away. I was studying the Yoruba tradition under Chief Ojamo, Mama KK, and Baba Sergeant. And when they lost their building in New York, I allowed them to meet in my mosque on Sundays to do the Yoruba temple. Well, that was totally unheard of. But that made me a lot of enemies again in the Islamic community. Because by then, I was studying African religion. Because if you study Malcolm, he had two friends. If you listen to his speeches, he always called their name. Baba Sergeant, who was the Yoruba priest, and um, Nana Denny Zulu. Malcolm would call him, listen to his records, he'd call him Gus Denny Zulu, who was an Akan priest. So when I became the imam, those two communities became my friends. Just that they had been Malcolm's friends. You know? And so I was studying the Akan tradition, and I got to be very close friend with Gus Denny Zulu's son, Kimanti Denny Zulu, who was a trained priest in the tradition of Tigare. And I was studying with Chief Ojamu, and then on the Mother KK, who sat on the OAU board. She was the priest of Yemoja. While I was the email. So that was wow. a, it was a problem for some people. But I had already studied enough history to not see Islam as a historical friendly instrument to African people when it came to the slave trade and the 1500 or so years prior to that slave trade. And so I had problems from the very beginning. But my position was, if this helped the United African people, then I'll do it. And I learned it very well. And I did it very well. But I didn't, it wasn't, I wasn't there. I was African. I wanted to be African. I wanted to be what mama told me I was. I wanted to be the root man. I wanted to be Miss Pigeon's son. When I got ready to go to take over that mosque and I went to my grandmother and she asked me, baby, why do you want to do this? And I told him who Malcolm was. And I said, I want to go to New York and take over the organization and lead it for him because they killed him. And so she prayed for me. She had me put my head down in her lap and she prayed for me in her way as this African part Yoruba part Congolese woman, part Sterleon Mendy woman. And she told me, no one will be able to kill you if you don't let them put it through your mouth. He said, I got everything else. And that woman told the truth. No one could kill me. Do I know what she did? No. Have I been trying to learn all these years? Yes, I've been trying to really get this African spiritual thing together. Um, but I followed her lead she protected me throughout. Um, she would come in my dreams and be my warner. So this has just been my life. You know what I'm saying? I got a big brother who was like my guardian. When I became the E-man, my mother came and became my cook. She said, you're not going to eat anybody's food but mine. Like grandma said, if they don't get it through your mouth, they can't touch you. Mm. 
To some people, this may not be real, but to me, this was real. You understand? This is what I come out of. This is real. Yeah, I, I people, really wanted to people give. People hear about the Gullah Geechee people, but they don't understand that we really did live in a world that was very African focal and African centered because we were isolated in those woods. We were isolated on those rice plantations most of the year because the white man was scared of the malaria mosquito. He came certain times a year when the mosquito was not. The rest of the time, we made our way our own way as long as we gave him his rice. You know? And so we had our world. People want to reduce us now to ring dancing and, 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 and part of probably made pronunciation and language. No, the biggest thing about the Gullah Geechee community, like any community, whether they come, the, the, the community, African community out of Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, especially on the Gulf Coast, is their retention of African tradition. Texas, you know, going right into Louisiana. It is the retention of our traditions, our spiritual traditions, our cultural tradition that we hid in the churches, we hid in the secret societies, but we practice it knowingly. That's what we are losing now in this generation. And we need to grab a hold up before we really lose it. With that being said, Professor Smalls, on October 14th, the topic is um, how to make spirituality and black liberation a life commitment. Now, I don't want to uh, spoil anything that you plan on telling the people there on October the 14th, but can you just share some of the right. topics that you want to address to get people to come out? Well, that being the main topic mm -hmm. and explaining you can't separate spirituality from liberation. Spirituality is your reality and liberation is your intent when you are not free. And to fulfill that intent, you must be shackled to your identity. Okay? You must be shackled to your identity. And that means you must know your people's history. Your people's history is the experience of your ancestry. So when we go to Galveston, we're leading a caravan to the ancestors. Their spirits live in that water, on that shore, in that town. That's where the worst thing that ever happened to them after being put on the ship happened to them. That energy and vibration is still there. You can go there and feel them. So when you say history, you're talking about the experiences and the teachings of your ancestry. And that's what we must capture. One cannot say I'm a revolutionary and then I'm not spiritual. Revolutionary are born out of the spiritual essence of a people and their desires to be free. Understood. So we don't separate them as one package. What the white man has done is made us separate them. But we got to bring the body of Osiris back together again. As yeah. one instrument. I always say that they, um, when we think holistically as black people, we think mind, body, and spirit. In the mm -hmm. West, they separated the mind, the body, and the spirit. For the for the body, mm -hmm. they tell you to go to a doctor. For the mind, they tell you to go 
talk to a, a therapist or a psychologist um, for the spirit, they tell you to go to church, but they don't think of it from a holistic standpoint to know that if one is off, it's probably due to the other two being off and not right. segregated and going in these, these different places for the mind, the body, and the spirit and thinking and, and looking at it from a holistic standpoint. When we people. talk about African spirituality, we're not talking about Western religion conceptually, right? African spirituality is a dialogue and a practice and a way of living that derives a worldview that explain your relationship to nature and nature's relationship to you, your interdependence on nature and nature's interdependence on you. And then it explains your and nature interdependence on the cosmology and on cosmology interdependence on you and nature. That's what African sacred science is about. African spirituality is really begin to, when you begin to live out African sacred science, the knowledge and wisdom of African sacred science. Like for those of us who are into the Yoruba tradition, there's no such thing as a Yoruba religion, okay? There's the African tradition that is practiced by the Yorubas. That same tradition is practiced by the Akans. That same tradition is practiced by the Congolese or the Indibeli or the Zulu. They just have different ritualistic elements and practices. But the law of nature is the same, no matter where the hell you are. The same sun that shines on Houston shines on Shanghai, shines on Congo, and shines on Brazil. And the effects of the sun is the same everywhere it shines. Now, the difference is, is the understanding of the different people of what the sun does or doesn't do. You know? But it doesn't change the nature of what the sun does. Man, Professor Smalls, we're going to wrap it up in a few because I don't want to give too much more away. Um, but Brother Kofi, you yes, been, sir. anything you want to express um, before we uh, before we wrap it up? Any questions you had for Professor Smalls? No, I just want to tell people to go to 2022sankofacaravan.eventbrite.com. They can get the full scheduled there, or they can call us at the National Black United Front at 832-422-7806. Check us out on our social media in both Houston, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter for updates and the full schedule. And um, I look forward to the event on the 1st, the 8th, the 14th, the dialogue, the interchange with uh, Baba Small, and uh, Mama C, yeah, uh, who shout bringing out, shout out to Mama uh, C, yeah, yeah. bringing yeah. perspectives that can help us. I, I would just say this: that that we put that question of, and, and he stuck. Baba Small broke it down. We put that question out there because we have to get everything we can from our knowledgeable elders when we have the opportunity. Yes. To do so. And we don't have to make the same mistakes that were made in the past if we are able to listen to the elders. I think about this. I was 30 some years younger when the first time I met Baba Small. Mm -hmm. And so was he. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take advantage of the opportunity that's presenting itself to us 
and have that connection um, through history. So we look forward to it. Yeah, and you know, Baba Kofi, it doesn't seem like 35 years, you know. Mm -hmm. Baba Kofi stayed in my home in New York on occasions. He was in my home um, when college was leading us into the first Million Youth March. Uh, we trained the very soldiers that protected college that day in our basement that night. They mm -hmm. had a, what, a eight-hour crash course in security, mm -hmm. and they were the baddest dudes on the block. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I went to I went to the Million Youth March when <laughs> I was small and about, what, about 10 or 15, or it seemed like about 10 or 15 mm -hmm. uh, Yoruba priests and priestesses. They was all dressed in white. I, I was dressed in black coming down uh, 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 the street. That's how I went to the march. Hmm. In Harlem, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Youth March. Yeah. I want to say, so, um, for uh, one, I, I want to, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying, we have a history. Struggle is not something some people should do. As many of our community people have left the burden on so few. Struggle is something that everyone in the community should do and could do. None of us do the same thing. But if we contribute where our strengths are towards the goal of our people's freedom, and freedom to me means the power to define your reality, as Dr. Noble told us, and I've others accept your definition, and that means to control the economic politics and culture where you live to be in charge of owning land, labor, and resources where you live, to be able to provide food, clothing, and shelter for yourself and your people without begging any other ethnic group. That's what we're fighting for, you know? And a lot of us have to unlearn a lot of things that um, we've been taught, and some people are scared to step out out of fear. Um, just it's you know it's just um for a lot of us we've just been taught not to question certain things out of fear of the unknown but it's really not the unknown because it's, it's ours it's, it's it's been here um that's why it's essential for people to come out and get an understanding of our history when i say our history it's ours we created it all but to get back to the essence of african spirituality and understanding you have scientists that everything that they talk about comes from the Eurocentric view of astronomy, a Eurocentric view of the sciences and the arts, and not even comprehending what was going on with the with the serious star system and the Dogon and, and having that understanding and having pride and respect for what our ancestors did and to know that we all will become an ancestor. One thing um, Brother Kofi talks about is throughout that 25 years, and Brother Kofi, you could attest to this before we, we actually do wrap up, is um, every year that you go out there, you know, you guys have seats, chairs for the ancestors, right? That that were once a part yes. of the caravan. Mm -hmm. so, In 25 years, think about how many people have made their transition that have actually participated. Right. And it's stirring. I was looking at a video from the 12th caravan the other night and the drummers and a number of the drummers, Baba Fanon, Baba Shango, Baba Abu Baka, mm -hmm. all of them are Egun ancestors now who, who participated in the caravan every year. So yeah, it expands. Yeah. 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 But new people come. 
Oh yeah, New, yeah we, I mean on the physical. And yeah. Bob Small can get real, real heavy in, yeah. in it and everything. And they come, they, I'm sure they come back too. Yeah. But uh, it is a little emotional to see people who have given so much, whatever their particular lane, as Bob Small said, if they may be a drummer, a dancer, a technician, or something. Say wow, they were at that caravan going hard, and now they they are ancestor themselves. Yeah, brother Kofi, I want to say I want to say thank you for everything that you've been doing and everything that Mbuff has been doing. I like to say Mbuff is an organization that a lot of people may not they may not know, but they know. <laughs> they may not know, but someone has benefited from Mbuff, whether they announce it or not, whether they proclaim it publicly, commercially, however. Um, they have benefited from an organization like MBuff. Um, once again, Baba, Professor Small, I want to say thank you for all of the scholarship, the activism, everything that you've done. Like I said, we are the students. We stand on your shoulders. And uh, energy is never created nor destroyed. It just changes shape and form. So all of that energy that you've put here, um, I'm hoping that it just continues in future generations. So I want to say thank you to both of you gentlemen for taking out this time. And I want to encourage everyone that's listening and everyone that's watching this to please, please, October 1st, it's an event almost, what, every week? Right. right. First, the 8th, the 14th, and the 15th. And they can get that on that Eventbrite piece. See the the whole schedule. But Bob Small is going to be laying it down on the the 14th 14th. and the 15th. Yeah, I'll I'll be one of the moderators we got um, Mama C and my sister in rhyme, Alicia Miles, will be moderating. So the, the energy will be balanced on the 14th. But this is Gentlemen's History Hour. I go by the name of Equality. We got Brother Kofi from the National Black United Front. We have Professor Small all the way in New York. New York, right? Yeah, New Rochelle, New York. New Rochelle, New York. I want to say thank you, gentlemen, again. For people that's watching this, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. We want more and more people to subscribe to get programming like this. A lot of times when we see black men on TV or um, they have some type of avenue, they're talking about sports and entertainment for the majority of the time. We want to have conversations that engage, conversations that the way Professor Small was inspired by Malcolm, we need more people. I want a young kid to say that he was inspired by Professor Small the way Professor Small was inspired by Malcolm. So with that being said, I want to say peace, vibrating on high vibrations, high frequencies, and I'll see everybody. The boat ride October 1st, October 8th, October 14th, and October the 15th at the Caravan for the Ancestors. Thank you, brothers. Peace. Thank you for the opportunity. Peace.